right. I'd like to begin our, before we start our q and I've got a small confession myself to make and a reminder of why those microphones are so important. A friend of mine who listens to uh, the ABF regularly um, made an observation last week that he's spot on with. Apparently, when people say something, whether I'm agreeing or disagreeing with them, I am very likely the first word out of my mouth is no. I'll even say no, no, yeah. <laughs> and I, after he pointed out to me, I listened, and my goodness, do I do that. On the phone call with him, it just seems like a default word that I say. And his point was, you know, if people are talking and they're venturing in, you certainly don't want to make them, like, nope, nope. I'm like, no, I agree. I just said, no, I agree. Wow. <laughs> that, was not, that, was, that was not me trying to be clever. And so anyway, so up front, I want to acknowledge that. And as, as I do that, without totally dumping on me, you can, yeah, you did that again. Um, I'm going to try to just to remove that pattern of speech from me. I, I certainly, yes, Kathy. Is that a new development, Mother? We need the mi- microphone for 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 the matron, the Mother Queen. No, the, the Mother Queen needs a microphone. <laughs> queen Mother. Hold 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 on for posterity. I do not recall it as a particular pattern. There we go. <laughs> so anyway, let me, let me say up front that I mean nothing by it. I really do mean nothing by it. And I am trying to catch myself, but, but literally on the phone with my friend four times, he was saying something like, no, no, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Oh, man. Okay. So uh, please don't think I'm disagreeing. I'll, I'll make it clear if I disagree with you. I promise that, um, and and uh, I am going to endeavor to exorcise this um, this pattern of speech from from myself. Anyway, that said, uh, any questions from this morning, or any thoughts, or or anything on Jesus teaching on prayer? Kathy, whoa, 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 whoa! I just told you about how effective the microphones are and appreciated. You didn't say no. You said, whoa. So that was good. Yeah. Okay. I said, whoa. I just wonder if we might be able to get a copy of um, what you read there from Mm. John MacArthur. Actually, you can. I, Natalie Conradi, who isn't here, usually Conradi stick around, but Elsa's sick, so I imagine they left to care for her, uh, always asks me for a copy of my quote, so I just show up ready for one, but I'd be happy to go print that off. Um, print that off for you um, as soon as we're done. So just remind me if I forget. Okay, can, thank you. Anyone else want? I'll print five or six off if anyone wants one I can give you. And you'll also get the quote I didn't use, which I want to read. Um, you guys ever hear of Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy? <laughs> yes. Um, I had one that I thought better of using. Daniel, Pastor Daniel, thought better of this as well. But when it was for the part where no one ever gives their son a scorpion when they ask for a, for a fish... Um, there's a Jack Handy that made me think of this. I'm going to read it to you now. <clears throat> one, thing's, one thing kids like is to be tricked. For instance, I was going to take my nephew to Disneyland, but instead I drove him to an old burned-out warehouse. Oh, no, I cried. Disneyland burned down. <laughs> he cried and cried, but I think that deep down he thought it was a pretty good joke. <laughs> I started to drive over to the real Disneyland, but it was getting pretty late. Okay, But the only reason that's funny is because it's so outlandish because you don't do that to your children. You don't do that to people. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So apparently the answer is which among you? Matt. That's who. Okay. Okay. So you'll, you'll get that wonderful quote as well on your, my sheet. Um, any other... Any other... Uh, any other Thoughts or questions or anything from this? I thought I thought you had one. Okay, hold on. Basically, it was before you uh. got into the sermon, oh, and okay. um, I remember when we were reading, you were reading the scripture. I wrote in the margin, so you can twist, you think you can twist God's arm? I think not. Right. The part where it says, uh, you know, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Right. I picked up on, ah, uh, you don't 
twist the sovereign. Right. And that's and that's I, no, no, and that's an important distinction. I just did I just do that? Okay. Okay, this is gonna be good, painful, but good. The Lord sanctifies us in many different ways. Pray for my nose. Yes. Because that's that's the notion of paganism. The, the whole the whole heart of paganism is you make an idol for the god, you make a house for the god, you put you, you manipulate the idol in the house and the god, and finally, eventually, you force the god to give you what you want. And that is not the notion of Christianity, as though but that, that really is the picture. He's not really disposed to be kind to you until you jump through the right hoops, do the right things, and then eventually you've done the things that the God wants, and then the God will give you what you want. I mean, that, when you read about um, them sacrificing their children to Molech, and you wonder, where on earth did they get that from? Um, it was a fertility thing. And so the concept, and this, this shows up in many pagan religions, um, in Greece, they were, they'd, they'd take out in, in the field, they'd, they'd kill the king sometimes. The thought being that you shed the blood of life and it becomes the seed of new life. So I'll take this, the fruit, the seed of my body, and I will sacrifice it to Molech so that Molech will, will give seed to the grain. It's economics, which means nothing's really changed because I think that's the primary reason economics that people do the same thing today. Spirit of the age, folks. Spirit of the age. But that, that's the picture. I will, I will entice the God with something the God wants. I'll give the God what he wants. And then... God will give me what I want. And so if you think, if you just pray this enough, you're going to force God's hand, you're going to twist his arm behind his back. He, uh, no, no, okay, seriously, okay, fine. That's paganism. And so, so there are some who take this picture of the, the importune friend and, and think that's what Jesus is saying. Be that guy. Keep banging on the door. Keep shouting. I'm not going away. Now, there is, hold on, think of Jacob wrestling with the angel. There is something to that. And no, you read through the Psalms. No, you read through the Psalms, and you'll find the psalmist saying things like, Answer me, Lord. Answer me when I called you, and do not enter into judgment with your servant. And arise, O Lord, and vindicate my cause. And there's some boldness in the Psalms. But it, we're not to think that God is unwilling until you finally cajole, shame, and you know, uh, bully him into giving you what you want. That's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. So the argument, I think, is again from the lesser to the greater. If this is true in the lesser sense, that even with a friend who's unwilling, you'll go to him. How much more should you go to a father? Um, It's not, okay, take the same tactics you'd use in waking up your friend to wake up God. In fact, that's the way Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal, right? They're, they're, They're chanting and they're cutting themselves, trying to get the fire to come down from heaven. What does he say? He's, he's gone on a journey, or he's using the toilet. That's literally what he says. Or he's asleep. Cry harder and wake him up. That's, that's a sign. That, that approach is, is a sign of false religion and paganism, and, and, and Elijah mocks them for it. That's not what we're doing. Even though Jesus will tell us to be persistent and not give up in prayer, we're not being persistent because finally God's saying, okay, enough already. Enough already. We're, we're, no more. Okay, fine. Here you go. Um, I, I think that when God wants us to be persistent, he, it's, he wants to train us to keep coming to Him. But, there, but Jesus teaches on prayer in a lot of places. Here, I think the main point is understanding that God is your Father, and when you really understand that God is your Father, that changes everything. And I love that Tim Keller quote. Because you think about a king. No royal official, the, the, the secretary, it doesn't matter who you are, you're not waking the king up. But that three-year-old kid will just, I mean, mine do at least. It was just a, we've got those, I don't know if this is a blessing or a curse, we've got those um, baby monitors that you can actually, they work like a CB radio, you can talk back. Well, the kids know you can talk back. So now you're in the middle of, Mama. And if you don't answer that, it'll slowly increase in volume. Um, <laughs> but no, the children will come in and they'll, wait, they'll crawl on the bed with you and they'll just come up, they had a bad dream. No hesitation, they're not afraid. I, I was talking about this with one of my kids last last couple of days because I've been training him to um, talk to God and explain to him that he can talk to God. And, and he's, I think in a sense, that's not a bad thing, a healthy sort of fear. I'm kind of scared to talk to God for long. And I, I asked him, I said, look, when you have a bad dream, do you, are you worried that we're going to yell at you when you come up to our room? 
Are you worried that we're going to say, get lost? No. Why not? Well, because you love me. Yeah. God says even more so. That's true with him. Yeah. And so my own son's having to believe and wrap his head around this stuff. So I, 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 that's this one big point. That's it. Um, any thoughts, questions, follow-ups? Oh, Linda. Okay, I have a comment and then a question. Okay, so I know it's only a parable, but really, if you think about this, like you were saying, the way the family slept back then, if this guy's yelling at the guy at the door, <laughs> saying, I can't help you because my kids are in bed and asleep, they're not asleep anymore when he's yelling and right. at the person outside. So, yes. you know, okay, yes. anyway, <laughs> that just came to mind. Okay, Indeed. but my question is on number 2A, when you had James 1.5 there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so two things on that. Um, it says, so verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, mm -hmm. he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Mm -hmm. So in that context, it's just about seeking wisdom, no, not... No. Ab, 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 I, I do disagree. I'm not a disagree. I'm correcting. So the no is right. <laughs> yes, but. Thank you, Simeon. There you go. <laughs> okay. Yes, but. All I'm grabbing from there is the title he calls God. In the Greek, the title is Ask the Giving to All and Not Reproaching God. If that's who God is, that's who God is. If you can call God a title, the giving to all and not reproach, that's all I'm trying to grab from James 1.5. That James 1.5, who is God? He's the giving to all and not reproaching God. That's who he is. And in that particular context, therefore, if you, ask for wisdom, if you lack wisdom, ask for God in faith. Absolutely. I'm just pointing to the character of God as the giving to all and not reproaching, specifically the not reproaching, the not, why did you come to me with that? Seriously, get out of here. He doesn't. He gives. He doesn't reproach. He doesn't get mad when you ask. Now he may say no, and James gives an unqualified promise for wisdom only. He's not promising the car or whatever. But God's character as the giving to all and not reproaching remains. That's that's all I'm getting from that is God's character. That t title. It's not as clear in English, but in Greek, it's a it's a title. It's let him ask. Then the word the giving to all and not reproaching God. Um, sorry, does that make sense what okay. I'm trying to get at? Yes, but then can oh. I go a couple of verses more? Keep going. <laughs> okay. You must ask in faith without any doubting. Yes. For the one who doubts is like the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man accept to receive anything from the Lord. Right. He's a double-minded man and let's so, in all his ways. Obviously, most of the time we come with some at least small percentage of doubt. Like, not that he can do it, Yes. But, you know, it's, it, you know, <laughs> you know what yes. I'm trying to say? Like, yes, I know. We're not going to be 100%. We probably should be, but we're mm. never probably going to be 100% sure that. Yes, Linda, this. Good job. This passage is not the totality of Jesus' teaching or the New Testament's teaching on prayer. And there are, there's, there's plenty of qualifications for prayer. James one, James chapter 4 will say, you have not because you ask not. And you ask, you have not because you ask wrongly to spend it on your pleasures. So, so in, in the context of Luke, we're limiting this to the four or five petitions Jesus taught us to pray. If I'm praying for the Lamborghini, that's not my daily bread. But within the confines of when you're praying for these things, just like James qualifies his promise to wisdom, when you're praying for these things, God's always going to answer those prayers when you come as his children, addressing him as father, when you're asking God, I want to fear your name more. I want, I want to reverence you more. God's not going to say, get out of here. How dare you come in and wake me up? He's opening the, yeah, God, I want to be more obedient. God, please forgive me and restore my relationship. These are promises that are always going to get answers. God, give me my needs for today. That's, in that context, they're unqualified promises of yes. But there's plenty more New Testament teaching on prayer. If, if I'm quarreling with my wife, First Peter, right? So that your prayers are not hindered. There's that. The Psalm 119, if I regarded the iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not listen. If I've got unconfessed sin in my heart, God's not... I mean, there's a, whole, there's a whole lot more to say about prayer than this. I just think the main point of Luke's 5 through 13 is that one big point. 
grasping the fatherhood of God to his children and the implications for our approach. But there's a whole lot more to be said on prayer, absolutely. And also, the answer may not come in the form that we desire. Right. He doesn't say he always gives... My, my kids ask me for all sorts of things that I, I, I don't give them. More candy sometimes. What I don't do is give them serpents and snakes. What I don't do is give them, you know, here's a, here's a knife, play with it. I, I don't take them to the burned-out warehouse and say Disneyland burnt down. <laughs> um, so... So absolutely, Jesus is not promising that every single thing we bring, we're going to get a yes to. What we don't need to ever fear is that mockery, that cruelty, that um, just, that, yeah, cruelty, mockery, give me another synonym or something, um, just sort of tormenting and delighting and unexpected, like, like somebody's going to get slapped. Sadism. What? Sadism. Sa- sadism, yeah, sure. None of that. That's never going to happen. And the fact that he's bringing that point up, I think, suggests that we might be inclined to think that. that he, he, the best picture I can think of is the dog. One, one of my mom's dogs knocked over a teacup the other day, and I scolded it. And Man, after, after that, it's just sort of sitting there and not, you know. You know and, and that's how I, sometimes I think we're going to, well, why? The dog's afraid that I'm going to speak to it in a harsh tone again. And we can be afraid that's what God's going to do when we come before him is start barking at us. Uh, so, yes. So, a little bit of a different vein of prayer. In Corinthians 4.12... 1 Corinthians? Or, sorry, Colossians, I'm sorry. Colossians. Um, yeah, a little bit different book. First Colossians, not the second one. So, <laughs> so there's this... The verse is Epaphras... Who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. This always struggling on your behalf in his prayers part has always stood out to me as like, wow. What do, you, what do I do with that? How do I get there? Like, He's not really mentioned anywhere else as far as I know, but he's like commented in the last part, like, there's this guy, he's praying for you this hard. Oh. Well, I, I think that, uh, and, and again, this goes beyond the scope of what Jesus is, is teaching in, in Luke. But I think we are taught to labor in prayer. Now, we're not laboring in prayer, as, as you pointed out, to somehow twist God's arm. But I, I, I think that one of the reasons we're to labor in prayer is because we believe that God listens and because we believe, I mean, and I don't have time, but more to the point, I'm not fully prepared having studied it exhaustively enough. There is something to wrestling with God in prayer. There is something to uh, fasting and praying and just focusing on this request that is not twisting God's arm, yet somehow clearly is not more effective, but that, at times that's the way it's seen. If you're really concerned about something, you're focusing on it. So Daniel just prays for like a month to the Lord about Israel and about the captivity. He won't let up. And so there is something to that. Now, now Lee, you want to you wanna say what that something is? What that something is is that you're wrestling almost against your own flesh and blood. In the sense of, you know, we pray, and I, I pray for, it's pathetic. I mean, you know, what we think we're really putting some time in, and then you look at the clock and was like, what? Three minutes? Wow, I thought I was really putting it in there. And it's your own the thoughts. You, you, you start thinking of, what do I get at the grocery store? What has to be done today? Mm-hmm. You know, you're, so you're in a constant battle against that. And one thing I've learned is if I do have any bit of prayer time, I have a list with me so I can write things down mm-hmm. that I think of and forget them. And then, you know, keep praying, supposedly. So, right. yeah. Yes. One of the, if not the most, and Deb needs a mic next, uh, homework assignments I ever had in seminary or any class ever was a class on prayer with Andy Snyder. And the homework assignment was simply this. Five days a week, the school days, pray for one hour nonstop. I eventually had to go for walks so I wouldn't get distracted. Yeah, it was one of the most humbling. I mean, you th- you don't re- here's the thing: you don't realize how much you don't want to pray until you're you're doing it beyond the first minute or two. 
And there's a lot of self-protection that we do in not doing that so we don't realize just how much we actually don't want to spend in the throne room of God. And that was a very difficult homework assignment. Uh, very difficult. It, it bore a lot of fruit. But it was, yikes, that was tough. Deb. Microphone. Oh, oh, Renee. So I was thinking on this whole thing, it is not changing God, it is changing people, the prayer. Changing us and, and the power in prayer, not only for us, but for the person we're praying for. I think we underestimate the power of prayer and just how it changes us and those we're praying for. It all depends on what you mean by whether I say yes or no. If what you mean is God's eternal, timeless plan does not change, God does not go, oh, hadn't thought of that. Well, since you put it that way, okay. On the other hand, I am aware of people who literally think that prayer does nothing to affect anything. It's simply for us. And I see the New Testament again and again and again emphasize the prayer of a righteous man avails much. So when I say prayer, people, people trip up, prayer changes things. What do you mean prayer changes things? I thought you were a Calvinist. Okay, prayer is effective. Prayer has results. And, and here's the thing. As someone who firmly believes in the sovereignty of God, that according to God, I declare the end from the beginning and things that have not yet happened, I call a bird of prey, I will accomplish my purposes. The God who, according to Ephesians 1.11, is working all things together according to his will. Uh, or Romans 8.28, for the sake of those who love him, he is causing all things to work together for their good. God ordains the ends and the means. And a wonderful analogy, I, I don't know where I first heard it, is uh, back to the parent picture, is there are plenty of things that I intend to do for my children that I will often wait until they ask me to, because there's a greater joy and development of our relationship. So like, if I said I was going to give them something, or if I said we were going to do something, they come to me, Daddy, remember when you said we could go to the park? They come and go, yeah, of course we can go. You know? And there's a joy that I have in them coming to me and me saying that. And, and God has ordained not just the, the ends, but the means. And the means of how he's going to accomplish things for the sake of the glory of his name is through his people's fervent prayer. So as somebody who holds firmly to the sovereignty of God, I actually get encouraged when something's on my heart. Because I think to myself, man, if, if I'm praying so much about this, well, let me, let me, work, let me work backwards, pause. Because people will often say, look, if you believe in election, predestination, why pray for anyone's salvation? That, that, that's the charge. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't this whole belief in the sovereignty of God lead to prayerlessness? Um, and, and I haven't taught on that yet. We'll take a break here in March or something and do a couple weeks on that. But here's, here's the point. Is the desire to pray for the salvation of any individual a good thing? Is God calling us to lift up prayers for people to be, come to faith? This, it's not a trick question, Lee. Lee's got the... This. Harvesters. Right. Yeah, it's not the predominant prayer, but there are prayers that, that, that God would is not willing that any perish, but all should come to repentance. Pray that uh, God would... Uh, Paul, my prayers are continually for my kinsmen, according to flesh. I could almost wish myself accursed for their sake, right? So no, we, we got some. Now, you're, you're remembering what I said a couple weeks ago, that the predominant weight of the biblical petitions are on the people with the gospel going. But can't, is it a good thing to pray that God would open the eyes of the heart of a particular individual? Is that a good thing? Next question. Where did that good thing, that desire, come from? Did it well up within my good humanity from the goodness of Jeremy? Is not any good thing in me a result of God's grace and the fruit of the Spirit? So then, the Spirit has produced in my heart this good desire to pray for the salvation of Bob. Hmm... And this is, I'm just burdened for Bob. I mean, man, I can't get Bob and his salvation off my mind. I've been lifting up to prayer over. Why shouldn't I think, perhaps God's in the act of saving Bob and he wants to do it through my prayers. Why else? I mean, there might be other reasons, but when I'm really burdened for something in prayer, I become much more hopeful and encouraged God's about to do something because why else is this, this burden, this weight on my heart? And so I'll pray all the more fervently that God would do it. So, so you, can, you can work the logic back that way too. Anyway, um, yes, Deb. 
And that's why I'm glad you talked first, because in even in your um, answer, it still touches what she and I were saying, or I was thinking, and I hadn't said yet, is on the end of the sermon, when you were getting into um, the quote from MacArthur, yeah. my thought was, oh yeah, maybe we need to stay persistent because we're not praying as he wants us to until, in other words, I wish you'd read the quote again, but sure. what I'm getting it at is the part where exactly what we're supposed to be praying for, and I've caught that happening, whether it's laboring in prayer or whatever you call it. When somebody gives a prayer request, sometimes it's on my mind. It's in the day. It's in the night. It's on my mind. And you just keep, like, all the time thinking about it and yeah. sort of sort of yeah. praying about it. And gradually it changes. <laughs> I don't yeah. know why, but oh, yeah. read that and what you'll see is the stuff he said he was wanting to, us to pray for has changed to what the Holy Spirit does. Yes, yes. That, that frequently will happen. In fact, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I think that literally means that is, your desires will change as you labor in prayer. Frequently, as we labor in prayer, our hearts and our minds come into alignment with his. That's not all that happens. I mean, it's clear in Exodus that when Moses intercedes to the people, God said, I will destroy them, and then God says, I will not destroy them. And I don't think it's that God changes his mind in the sense of, of that. Here's what I think with, with that, if you go and deal with those intercessions. God is saying the right, righteous, appropriate, and fitting thing for me to do right now as the situation stands is blast Israel for the golden calf. Then the situation changes and a righteous intercessor stands up and petitions and pleads with the Lord on their behalf. In this new changed scenario, I will now relent. That, that's, and we're learning who God is. He's a God who listens to righteous intercession. Which is, of course, really good news since that's what Jesus is doing this very moment on our behalf in heaven. So, so I don't take it as God's surprise. In fact, I would say that God moved Moses' heart, that the grace from God is what enables Moses to stand up and petition. He wants to reveal to Moses this aspect of his character. But he's not lying or, or faking when he says, I'll destroy Israel. As things now stand, I absolutely will destroy Israel. Oh, look, things changed. It's kind of like um, Jonah going to Nineveh. Jonah never once invites them to repent. He simply announces judgment. Yet 30 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the reasoning on the behalf of the king is, I love this, he, he declares a citywide fast, sackcloth and ashes, for the animals too. Who knows, perhaps the Lord will re relent. And when the Lord saw their repentance and their humility, he, he, he relented of the calamity he declared against them. No. They, they reasoned in the hope of faith. I think it goes something like this. Why would God give us a 30-day countdown to being blasted? Maybe the reason he gave us 30 days was to give us time to repent. Let's do that. Maybe, maybe that's what this is about. And if we repent, he'll relent. I mean, they're grasping at straws in a sense because they don't know much about this God, but that's how they think. And then the Lord relents. He honors that. And it's not that God changed his mind. Before repentance showed up, there was going to be destruction. And once the situation on the ground changed, God's response changed. So that's, that's how I'd look at those passages, not as God's changing his mind, but as God is re reacting or interacting with creatures in time and telling us what he's going to do as things now stand. As, as things stand now, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and as things change, God's response can change. And it's not indicating some uncertainty or flip-floppiness in him, um, but literally showing us how he responds to, to his creatures and acts fittingly and righteously in every situation. Other, yes, hold on, get the microphone. You might be, is it on? Okay. It is. You might be tempted to think it is your persistence when you, I don't know where the scripture is, but the widow who mm -hmm. goes before the judge and he really didn't care about her, but he granted her wish. 
Mm. So how do you line that up with all of what we're saying? Oh, absolutely. We are taught elsewhere to be persistent and not give up. Um, I'm trying to think where Zebra here could look it up. These things Jesus taught that they should never grow weary and persist in prayer. If someone's got a smartphone, they can... Luke 18! My man! My man! Let's go to Luke 18. So, I guess I could simply say, I'll tell you in a year, or in like, you know, six or seven months. Um, oh, Simeon, I would not be that optimistic. Simeon thinks in the summer sometimes. I don't think it'll be there. Okay. Luke 18. Uh, look how it begins. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he tells about the widow. I, I love the, the guy who... She's persisting, and he's very self-aware. It's like someone from uh, Dostoevsky. Anyone here ever read The Brothers Karamazov? Dostoevsky, The Brothers Karamazov? No. It's just, the entire book is filled with a bunch of people who know exactly what they are and then sit around and have philosophical discussions. So, like, the prostitute knows exactly who she is and is okay with it. She's got a defense and the lecherous old father. Like, everyone knows exactly, this guy knows exactly who he is. I love this. Um... Look at, look at verse 7. He will not give justice... Oh, sorry. No, sorry, not verse 7. Verse, um, verse 4. Though I neither fear God nor respect man... <laughs> sorry, I always crash when this guy's that self-aware. Most people who don't fear God or respect people aren't willing to be that honest about it. This guy knows what he is. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual complaining. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth. Again, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. And I think that's the exact same argument being made even in our passage today. If you would get up and go and not be afraid to to call on your neighbor for help when you need help, how much more should you go to your daddy in heaven and talk to him? If If this woman will persist with this corrupt, wicked judge who hates people and hate, doesn't fear man, he doesn't fear God, and he's just... How much more? Like, don't think that's what's going on with God, but keep going. Keep talking to Him. Keep bringing your requests to Him. And by the time we get to there, I'll have a lot more to say, a good 45 minutes more to say on that one when we get there. But, but, preamble, yeah. Other, Kevin, microphone, coming. Microphones are coming. Through all this, it seems to me like this is, I mean, we need to realize that God's basically trying to tell us that through our prayer, it's obedience to pray, but also God's not changing through our prayer. We're the ones that are changing. I, I, I mean, I can't recall the, the chapters or the mm. books even, but I believe in the Psalms, many of what you just spoke about earlier when they're ranting and complaining, what usually happens through those through those rants, they always come back to say, but God, your will be done, or mm. they accept what God is doing. They, mm. they all do. Even though, and we, I'm sure we all go to prayer and are just crying out for why is this happening to me or what, you know, change this, God. But God changes us through that prayer. Hopefully, by the end of your prayer, you're basically submitting to His will. I, I think it's I think it's both, Kevin. Everything you've said, I completely agree with. That through us coming, we we get in line with His will, and sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is not now, and sometimes the answer is is different than you expected. There are also examples, though, where because they persisted in prayer, the Lord gives them what they asked for. I'm just thinking of James, the example of Elijah. Imagine Elijah was a man like us, the spirit like us, and he prayed fervently that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three years. Or Hannah, laboring in prayer before, the, before uh, Shiloh, before the uh, tabernacle, and the Lord granting her request. Or I'm, I'm, right now I'm 
I got a new Bible because the font on that one finally was getting a little too small. And one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had is copying my notes and highlights from one Bible over to the other. It's the second time I've had to do it. And I just got done going through Chronicles. And I'm seeing again and again as, as God brings up, uh, God brings danger, the people humble themselves, they, they turn to God, they pray. And there's a clear cause and effect teaching in the book that because you've humbled yourself and because you've called on me and because you've looked to me, I will... And so I don't want to deny that either, that prayer does, and here's the way I say it, it's not prayer changes things, because then people worry about this sort of openness of God stuff, but prayer is effective. Prayer has results, and has results in me, but biblically, prayer has results in the world around us. Prayer makes things happen. Those are all expressions I'm much more comfortable with. So everything you've said, I completely agree with prayer, will line my heart up with God's will, but I don't want to deny that prayer doesn't bear fruit in space and time in life because there's too many passages I can think of that also insist on that. Not that it always happens. Not that just because you prayed, prayed something's going to happen, but things do happen because of prayer. You, you, you cool with that too? I, I agree with everything you said. Now, what you sit in judgment on what I just said. I think it kind of goes in... <laughs> one and the same. I mean, you could say that uh, Hannah was praying for three years for what she wanted. God was changing her through that, either through her dependence on God, it was teaching her dependence on God, and patience on God. God may have planned on giving her that three years down the road anyway, but through this, she had to depend on God. Yes. That is absolutely... Let's go to let's go to First Chronicles. I want to read Solomon's prayer of dedication. It's it's both. It, it's it's no, it is. But I I was just reading this yesterday. Yes, it is. I just said no, it is. Wow, you guys are good. You're getting me on this. This is wonderful. My friend in New Hampshire has got to be laughing right now. Um, okay. Okay. It's uh it's First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Because First Chronicles goes through David, so Second Chronicles, prayer dedication of the temple. I'll, I'll know it when I get to the massive section. That's under. There we go. Six. And what I, I just read Solomon's prayer dedication, and what struck me is how much in the prayer he's praying that God would listen to prayer. So the prayer starts in verse fourteen. We'll read it in a minute. And after the entrance into the prayer, starting in verse 22, we get seven, I don't, think that's not, I don't think that's for nothing, conditional clauses. If this happens, and the pattern will be if, but then your people return and cry out to you, then hear from heaven and forgive, or then hear from heaven and forgive, or then hear from heaven and act. And so he's asking the Lord, setting up in sort of perpetuity, that in all of these seven different scenarios, if his people will relent and repent and return, that God would do various things. And sometimes the thing is to forgive, but in other times it's to act. So he's praying about prayer, and he's praying to God about listening to prayer. I just want to read it. This is, this is a remarkable prayer. Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple. Um, just uh, verse 12. And uh, let's read Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and he set it in the court and stood on it, and he knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. And he said, O Lord God, King, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him, that you spoke by your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised to him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way and walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now therefore, Lord, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. 
So to summarize, Lord, keep your word. I'm going to remind you what you said. And he does it in a very respectful way. And there's no danger God's not going to. But when you pray, you're reasoning with God according to his promises. I mean, there's this um, name it and claim it mentality where you sort of grab, but when you say, here's what you've said, and I know you're true, so now, Lord, do the thing you said you'd do. That, that's how Solomon starts off. He, he grabs a hold of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, the promises God made to David and to his posterity and the throne. He rehearses them, and he you know, calls on God, just like my kids come to me, and Daddy, you said we could go to the park. Can we go to the park? Yeah, I'd love to. Then, but will God indeed dwell? Then he, he notices the, he's going to highlight the frailty, the weakness, the insufficiency of his temple. But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard for the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O my Lord. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be opened may be open day and night towards this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servants offer towards this place, and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. This is why Daniel had his window open in Babylon when he was praying. He was praying towards Jerusalem, towards the temple specifically, where the temple used to be. And listen from heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. And then we get into the first of the seven if-then scenarios. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act as the ju- and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave them to their fathers. When Israel, when, then some of them are ifs and some of them are whens. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you, inf- when you afflict them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servant and your people Israel when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon the land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there's a famine in the land and if there's a pestilence or a blight or mildew or locusts or cattle, caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gate, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all the people of Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of the children of mankind, that they may fear you and walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you gave to their fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do according to all for which the foreigner calls you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemies, by whatever way they shall send them, and they pray to you towards this city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause." And then finally, the seventh one, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to a land far or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried away, and repent, and plead with you in the land and their captivity, saying, we have sinned, and we have acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity to which they are being carried captive, and pray towards this land which you gave their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, O God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place, 
And now arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let the priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. I wonder what God thinks of this prayer. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house of prayer. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now jump over to verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, And then here's that verse that everyone's got on their plaques next to an American flag, which I think you see now has, that's the stretch. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever. My eyes and heart will be there for all time. What he's in effect saying is all seven of those if-then petitions, I will do that. So he summarizes them with the pestilence, the drought, and the sin. But if they will humble themselves, and if they will turn, then, then yes, those seven requests that you made, Solomon, I will absolutely do them. That's the context of that verse. Um, which seems to me a bit of a stretch to, I mean, we'll get there, we can do that some other time. But, uh, but you see how Solomon prayed, and he lists out seven contingencies. And if, if the people will turn and they'll pray, will you act on their behalf, will you forgive? It's not always just forgiveness, sometimes it's upholding the cause of the righteous. If this sojourner is being mistreated and he cries out to you, will you, will you uphold his cause? Um, so I don't want to deny that there's a link between prayer and God doing stuff. Even as we're praying, some of the stuff he's doing is in my heart and to me. That it's, it's the both him. Anyway, I, was just, I was reading this and just blown away by Solomon's prayer. I mean, what a prayer. How instructive that is. Um, anyway, we got two minutes. Back in the back, Alex is going to bring us home. Equity in the house. One one thing that um, we know about persistence in prayer is it seems like the longer we pray about something, the more desperate we become. Mm. And then once we see that answer, the sweeter it is. Mm. So like praying for someone's salvation and you see them keep going further and further away from the truth, from mm. God, and yet God brings them back from that, it seems that much more amazing that he hears prayer and answers i agree that that that's part of it if if prayer were as simple as hey god i need some help and then stuff came it would be much less i mean think of those things that you've labored in prayer for the the people that you've been asking the lord would get a hold of them the the provision that's needed that finally comes and that you've been laboring in prayer for days weeks months and when, when those answers come how much more Wonderful, as, as, as you've said, we, you've realized there's nothing else I can do about this. Um, I, there's nowhere else I can go, and we become more desperate. We cast ourselves on the Lord, and and sometimes I want to see persistence in my children. It's not because I'm unwilling, but I I, I want them to know this about me. Uh, anyway, we are just about out of time, and you, oh, Carol, I thought Alex was going to bring us home, but it's going to be Carol. And then I'm going to close by reading my MacArthur quote, because I said I would. And my yes is supposed to be yes. Uh, George Mueller, a uh, great man of faith, mm. he ran these big orphanages in, in uh, London. Uh, late in his life, um, someone was asking him about prayer and faith and so forth. And he, he said something about, I'm kind of tacking on what Alex said. Mm. He said, there are two, two men, uh, sons of a friend of mine, 
And, and these, these guys were like in their 50s. And he said to them, they're not saved yet, but they will be. And I mean, he'd been praying for them for probably 30 or 40 years. And, uh, but yet he had the faith to say, they aren't saved yet, but they will be. I don't know how he had that much faith, but he, he did. And he prayed for an amazing number of things that all were for the glory of God, and they were all uh, answered. So, I don't know. Okay, let's, that's, now Mueller, if you get a chance to read a biography of Mueller, it's well worth your time. I'm going to close the MacArthur quote, and then we'll, we'll go home. Now, remember, just to set the context of it up from the beginning, MacArthur's addressing the question, when Luke adds... Or when Luke's account of this teaching ends with how much more your father give the Holy Spirit, and that's different than Matthew. And those are separate events. There's no conflict in Scripture. Jesus taught um, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount as part of a sermon. Here his disciples are coming and asking him questions. But we'd expect the content of his teaching to be harmonious with itself. So even though these are two different examples... He's teaching the same content, but in Matthew, it's how much more will your Father give you the things you need? Here's the Holy Spirit. Some people think he's limiting, narrowing the promise. And so that's where MacArthur jumps in saying, I I don't think so. The whole point of this is not that God's going to, is not that God is going to narrowly give us some prescribed things if we happen to hit the target. The whole idea is to come and ask for whatever is on your heart, to rush into God's presence whenever you want. Of course, with a measure of humility and reverence, but still, unbear your heart. Speak boldly. Be persistent. Go over the top, if you will. And you can expect that God, who is generous, will give whatever is good. But how does the Holy Spirit fit in? You ask for comfort, He's given you the comforter. You ask for help, he's given you the helper. You ask for truth, he'll give you the spirit of truth and your teacher. You ask for power, he gives you the spirit of power. You ask for wisdom, he's given you a spirit of wisdom. You ask for guidance, he's given you the guide. You ask for love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, and he gives you the spirit whose fruit they are released into your life. You see, this is the generosity of God. You ask for the gift, he gives the giver. You ask for the effect, he gives you the cause. You ask for the product, he gives you the source. On that note, we will dismiss. And I'll print off a couple copies of these and put them on Renee's counter if you want one. God bless. Have a good day.